Hello, and welcome. This is still Exit the Stage Door, and I am still your host, Aaron Teachman. I know, I've let an episode fall through. That was not for lack of trying. And in fact, when I apologized for the lack of an episode on Twitter, I stumbled into a fantastic interview with Karen Lang of Pinky Swear Productions, one of my favorite theater companies working in DC today. If you didn't check out their tiny house plays, you're totally missing out. I everything that they do is always on my my short list of things to see if I can arrange the time and and uh actually speaking of which, uh they're running a cabaret, Triple Xmas, uh December fourth and fifth, Logan Fringe Arts Space on Florida Avenue. Uh, you can find tickets at pinkyswear-productions.com. You should definitely check that out. I'm sure it's brilliant. I wish I could go, but I'm doing this whole thing with uh, Washington Ballet and Nutcracker. It's, it's yeah, it's that. It, if you aren't working in Nutcracker or Christmas Carol during this part of the season, congratulations. I envy you. Uh, but in the meantime, this was a fantastic pre-Thanksgiving warm-up. Uh, we didn't indulge in any kind of food, although Karen was kind enough to offer me coffee. We indulged in a wide-ranging conversation on all kinds of crazy subjects, including your favorites, theater, careers, uh, what it's like to have an ethical commitment to <laughs> when you set up a theater company and how you live through on that, and, uh, you know, marks and alienation of the worker from the product, and waffles as made of stuffing. Stuff like that. Look, it's an awesome conversation. I It was such a pleasure to take part in it. I am so grateful to Karen for reaching out to me on short notice just before Thanksgiving. And good things come to those who wait. And this is a very good thing. It's Karen Lang of Pinky Swear Productions. Okay, that looks promising. Yeah, okay. And then we'll just engage our backup here. And we're off. Awesome. Excellent. And I have a little make don't go to sleep. This is. Yes. So, I, <laughs> so, so the actual thing keeps on recording. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, get a, I occasionally get weird looks from, from some of my guests when I'm just like twiddling with it. No, I'm paying attention. It's just. Right. Are you playing a game? <laughs> Angry Birds is really hard out of the right. side it's of your really eye. Hard but, side eye. But I have mastered it from <laughs> years of experience. <laughs> <laughs> that, what, speaking of tech rehearsals and things you do during them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, yes. That's, oh, yes. Um, so I was doing a show in New York. I made the, I, I did this thing. So I, I, I'm, I'm an electrician accidentally by trade. Mm-hmm. And I moved to New York thinking I could get into the directing gig that mm-hmm. way uh, because I got really frustrated with being siloed. Like, you're the lighting guy, so you can't possibly have creative thought. Oh, yeah. That kind of, like, it doesn't, it's institutionally doesn't occur to them that this is possible. So I was like, okay, I have to leave. It's a great theater. I, was, I worked at the Alley um, mm-hmm. in Houston and um, moved to New York and <laughs> was a PA because it was the only thing, I, I, I applied to literally every not-for-profit theater in New York wow. who had anything vaguely resembling artistic or directing as, right. as part of their uh, internship programs. And I got a postcard, and I got an interview with primary stages saying, okay, look, we can't do internships, but we, the PA thing, it's 50 bucks a week, but you get to sit in the rehearsal room. Mm-hmm. I was like, done, okay. okay. At, least I'm, at least I am part of the process. Yes, yeah. um, uh, fascinating process. It was Pete Gurney's um, 
it was a new play. It mm-hmm. was it was Pete Gurney, A.R. Gurney's um, Black Tie. Oh, okay. You know, my, you know a, a delightful minor play. Right. Affectionate. Um, and during, as you can imagine, with a five-hander where there's no intermission, um, there's not a lot to do during tech. Yeah. And that's when I discovered yeah. Angry Birds. <laughs> <laughs> and that one level, I was like, the, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. How, <laughs> right. how, what is the sequence of the tumbling bird? How, yeah, that, that one always irritates mm-hmm. me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, yeah, I have a, a funny story about um, Candy Crush. Where <laughs> we were doing our um, tiny house plays a couple of, it was like, oh gosh, was it la- just last fall? Oof. Um, <laughs> And we were using Bluetooth speakers so that we could play some sound effects in some of the shows. Mm-hmm. So they're all in these little houses. Like, you can't really set up sound system that can be centrally done. And um, so I, I accidentally had the Bluetooth enabled on my iPad. And, you know, there's an army of ASMs, and I was usually there sitting on a bench while the plays are going on. And I start playing, and the Bluetooth speaker in one of the houses picks up. And it's saying, like, Candy Crush things, like, you know, crushed it, or, you know, Candy Yum Yum, or something. And, and they were all, like, and, like, the ASM, like, you know, is like, what? <laughs> I'm, like, so sorry. And the actors are trying to, like, play it off. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, um, I learned my lesson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About that. I, I never have the blue tooth. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, uh, site-specific plays like that, um. It just there's just all kinds of things that you don't think about until you actually do them, and right. then you're like, Ugh, it's and a- when they're you know indoor and outdoor, mm-hmm. then you know you have weather stuff that you wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily have if you were just doing a site specific indoor, and yeah. you have traffic, you have you know in in this case like um, you know little gangs of kids, you know teenagers coming oh, by yeah. and deciding they want to be a part of the procedure or they just want to be loud when they go by and. Little kids coming and asking for candy from concessions. I made the mistake of giving one kid a piece of candy, and she came back with like five friends. Uh. It was it was a mistake. <laughs> I I have I had the pleasure of of being able to go to Ooh. Tiny House Place. Um, awesome! It was an incredible experience, and I loved. I just loved the idea and the execution of it. It was was really good. Thank be- you. Because of the way. The way that the plays come outside as you switch, yeah, um, that, that keeps you engaged mm-hmm. in, and gives you that. It's a it's a brilliant uh, way of keeping the story going and finding different ways to enter a story, which is always mm-hmm. so interesting about where do you start the scene and how does that right. matter and and in the internet age, like people, I mean people, the German cultural studies people that I used to talk about de- dealing uh-huh. with like what does a hypertext mean and right. how do you create a story that the that the audience member is more responsible for than normal yeah and and that was a great solution to I thought it was a oh, fantastic solution thank you yeah I mean there was a, you know a number of people um, who were involved in sort of designing that experience um, you know and part of the part of the equation was figuring out how to get people in the, you know, to stay in their groups and to go in the shows in order and, you know, just finding like a color pattern and giving them a program so you didn't have to explain to them. Um, and my uh, partner over at Pinky Swear, Allison Harkey, came up with that. And that was really, um, it was a really brilliant way to do it and a simple way to do it. Yeah. And all it was was colored t-shirts and color paper. And 
you know, and that solved a huge problem about traffic. Mm -hmm. And we were excited to see people kind of come out and congregate in that area until the next show, just because, you know, people would be talking about one show and other people might be on their way to that one and, you know, see what their experience, how it would differ. Yeah. Um, and I like the, the one regret I have is that we didn't have some sort of survey or talk back mm. at any point to just ask people how that, you know, how that changed for them each time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a really it was a really cool experience and like nothing else that was going on. Yeah. Um, especially at the time. And, you know, hopefully <clears throat> hopefully there'll be more kinds of things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, we are sort of in a development phase and having ideas for more site specific stuff as well as, you know, just more locally grown things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, some of those uh, some of those where we have some high hopes about, you know, we have one play being written by um, one of our uh, associate company company members, uh, Brittany Alice Willis, and she wants to do a play that sort of takes place in our normal metro commute you know, of, of sitting on there and like the kinds of people that you meet. And, you know, while we don't want to do it just randomly in a metro car, <laughs> because that's sort of weirdly like busking or, yeah. or, you know, being the guy who's like, look, I'm just hungry. All right. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so she's, we're hoping that we can find like either an empty metro car or something yeah. make an approximation of that. Yeah. Cause the environment on that really does make a difference. You can't just watch that from an audience no, yeah. on a proscenium or something. Yeah. And that's a, it's the kind of thing where you'd spend kind of a lot of money on, on, elements to feel true that when that thing is right over there right and metal is expensive yeah yeah. we we built a whole swing set for one show (laughs) and metal is really freaking expensive yeah yeah it's it's usually why the shops recycle it yeah 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 i still have that swing set sort of unfolded in the backyard and i'm looking for some way to use it again Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. just shoehorn one into a (laughs) into a set drop backdrop yeah Mm -hmm. i um uh, this is a terrible segue, but um, mm-hmm. I was this close to being uh, the master electrician on The Last Burlesque. Really? Uh, I was talking to the production manager about it, and the dates just couldn't line up. But I, uh, so I didn't, I, and for that reason, I didn't get a chance to see it. But I was, I was like, oh yes, a chance to work with Pinky Square because oh. after after Tiny House Plays is like this company does such interesting stuff, and you guys are great on Twitter, like like your associate artists. Mm-hmm. I, I just sort of try to slip into that community and mm-hmm. and uh, be a part of that and it's it's fantastic yeah no thank you that's that's awesome to note and you know it's funny because um, I used to do the vast majority of tweeting for um, I used to tweet a lot and I used to also do a lot of tweeting for pinky swear itself and I sort of fell out of that habit last spring and it's one of my goals this year to get back in and you know do some more continual engagement like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's that's actually really good to hear. Um, and a lot, you know, several of our associates sort of got to know us through our social media presence and, you know, then saw the call we put out for, you know, for associate members to mm-hmm. come and spend a year with us. And then, you know, if that worked out, they could stay, um, you know, forever. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so our first year doing that, that was great. We had some attrition, but then we gained some permanent company members for that. And, you know, this second year has been this great infusion of people, we, you know, and the best thing about it is that, like, most of the people we've never met. <laughs> right. And, you know, and they show up and they work really hard and they're willing to volunteer their time. 
and, you know, just bring this like huge burst of creativity in. And, you know, if, if it was just the core company members who had been there for a long time, you tend to get in a rut. Yeah. And, you know, you, you know, there's a way that you do things and you don't deviate from it much. So if we hadn't brought in associates like um, Jessica Amon when she was in uh, that program to do the um, to do the tiny house plays like that, that wouldn't have gotten done. Um, cause one permanent company member, Tony Ray Salmi, um, had this idea for doing the car plays that are done out in Los Angeles yeah. mm-hmm. and they were not willing to give rights to anybody else to do that, even oh. though we were willing to pay for them. So, you know, then Jessica was like, well, there's these tiny house communities that I've just read about. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, fortunately these folks were willing to give us, um, you know, the space for free. Oh, wow. That's which, awesome. Yeah. Which means... Everything. There's your meow. Uh, which means <laughs> everything to a company because space is always the most expensive mm-hmm. part of everything. So, and we wish we could spend more on artists. And so then we were able to use our budget to spend on artists, which, mm-hmm. you know, is also incredible. And the army of ASMs that you were know, <laughs> yeah. so essential to that, yeah. um, to be able to pay them too. That's the, uh, the old saw is, uh, Amateurs talk about strategy and professionals talk about logistics. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you get down in the weeds of logistics and then you forget to talk about strategy right. anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the the philosophy that you have about uh, of paying people is mm-hmm. one of the things I think is uh, it's an ongoing discussion yes. in theater and in Washington, D.C. specifically. Um, mm-hmm. That and, and I think that's important to articulate. I, I think every theater company needs to find a way to think about that because if you're talking about community and having a positive impact on your community, mm-hmm. your artistic community is part of that and perpetuating a, a cycle of helping them make a living is... Well, yeah. And I mean, we would love... You know, our goal is to be the kind of company that could pay somebody a living wage, whether they're equity or non-equity. Um and, you know, a living wage where this was, you know, this is all you could do is, is hard unless you're extremely right. frugal and maybe live in one of those tiny houses, but, <laughs> um, you know, and not need material possessions or, you know, food or something like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's important to us to compensate people for their time because you are a professional in what you're doing, whether it's acting or tech or, um, you know, design or anything like that. And so from the get-go, we have always wanted to make sure, I mean, we didn't pay ourselves necessarily from the get-go, right. but, you know, you know, from the beginning play, anybody who was outside the company got paid. And, you know, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's a way to call yourself a professional theater otherwise, because if it's all volunteer, then, you know, you're essentially doing community theater, which is great. And, you know, that's no knock on them. It's right. just a different concept of what you're doing. And... You know, we've tried to remain pretty competitive in what we pay people, um, you know, which which means, you know, our budgets are it's it's hard to do theater on a shoestring. Yeah. And, you know, compared to the other mid and, and larger theaters, we, we definitely are operating on that. But, uh, you know, I want people to feel valued. Yeah. And there's a couple of ways to do that. One is to be grateful for their work and encouraging about it. And the other way is to actually give them some money yeah. to at least cover things like, you know, drive into rehearsals yeah. and, um, you know, whatever, you know, whatever other materials that, you know, that they then use to prepare themselves yeah. and, and their training. Yeah. I mean, you know, people like 
I always think about musicians, um, people who are good musicians who um, can, you know, can play professionally and, you know, people like accompanists, you know, for for musicals and things like that, they're always very good about demanding that they get compensated for their work and usually get paid better (laughs) than, than say the actors. But we, we both undergo rigorous training. We both try to keep our skills sharp and, you know, but we are like, you know, as, as you know, with my actor hat on, you know, we're so ingrained in the idea that we have to, you know, be willing to just do it to right. work and and take the the pittance if we can take it, and I I think that is devaluing the time and effort that you've put into preparing. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a it's an interesting trend um, to to sort of recast theater a little bit to recognize. Well, let me put it this way: to recognize creativity as a, a, a an acquired skill that requires work, mm-hmm. as in, as opposed to like the grand 18th to 19th century idea of art as genius. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're getting to the point where people are starting to say like, yeah, the reason I deserve to get paid is because I put in a lot of work mm-hmm. to do something that you feel is artistically valuable for your particular task. And that we, I deserve it. And right. like, there's a growing right. sense, like, I deserve it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. My, my trainer at the gym, they, they had like one of their corporate people come out and, you know, they wanted to set up a program where they would be paid more based on their years of experience. And, you know, my trainer was like, well, I have a lot of existing clients. Do I have to do that? And the guy was like, no, no, no. And this was very like motivational speaker kind of thing. The guy was like, I want you to say I'm worth it. <laughs> and he was like, I, he's like, no, are you worth it? You know, it was just, I, I mean, there's this certain internal monologue that you sort of have to, you know, say I am worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, not in the cheesy way, but in the, you know, I deserve it because I've put in my time. Yeah. So that, you know, I think, I think that's very, uh, I think that's a very good way to put it, you know, with the versus genius, it's, it's work. Um, you know, and you, that's that's why it takes years for a lot of actors to work a lot because you've got to get stage experience yeah. and you also have to continually find new skills yeah. and, and try to um, try to add to your toolbox of things you can offer. Absolutely, uh, I, I wanted to circle back because this uh, mm-hmm. to the to the community versus professional theater thing because I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's. There, there, there's a touchiness on that subject that I think comes down to, I think some people feel like using the word community is a, is, is like saying amateur implies Mm -hmm. a a lack of quality. Mm -hmm. Um, but I like to point out that the Olympics is full of people who are amateurs, Amateurs, but who are also the most amazing at the world, in the world at that thing. So, and you wouldn't consider it a hobby. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, it's, it's, I understand, I understand that sensitivity, but it's like, we just want, (laughs) I just think it's important to, to, uh, get that concept out there. So they don't feel. Right. I mean, there are some community theaters like Kensington Arts Theater who are doing really, you know, quality work. And, you know, the only difference is that it's volunteer. And, you know, some, you know, some very good actors have come out of community theater. Um, You know, I, when I was taking classes at studio and things and, you know, prior, even prior to that, I, I did several community theater shows, some of which were really, really great. I mean, you know, there's a variation in quality 
in professional and in, yes, in yeah. community. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the interesting thing with the, you know, the brouhaha about, um, with the Helen Hayes Awards yeah. last year of the pay levels and things was just that they, you know, was, was a lot of semantics. Oh yeah. I think that if they had approached it in a different manner and not said non-professional, I oh, think yeah. that would have raised way fewer hackles as high as they were raised. Yeah. Um, because, because money does not equal quality. Right. Absolutely. You know, there are some people who are brilliant and they always perform for free. Um, you know, I'll point out the work that I've done in improv with Washington Improv Theater. Um, everybody there is volunteering to do this. Um, I've done iMusical, the show there, for almost 10 years now. That's a lot of time that I've put in, but I wouldn't put it in if I didn't enjoy it and if I didn't feel like we were truly doing something unique to entertain an audience. Mm, yeah. And so do I consider that not a professional thing? Not really, because, you know... Uh, People have auditioned. People have been working for years. Yeah. You are continually working on improv. It is not like you can just yeah. stop doing it for years and then go back in like you never stopped. <laughs> right. That would be the you know nineteenth century genius people right. who can do that <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. But you know, the more you're there, the more you show up for rehearsals and things, the the better you get. And you know, is is that a hobby? I I think you know when you've when you've entertained thousands of people. Uh, you know, you, you can say you're a pro at something like that. Right, yeah. So, and that, so that's a good example of, um, you know, there's so many really talented improvisers in town. Um, you know, just because they're not paid doesn't mean they're not awesome. Right, yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, so I, I, I like to ca- characterize the, the show as a, uh, not, I don't, I don't interview people. We mm-hmm. just have a conversation. Yeah, this is going great. <laughs> <laughs> but we do. I, I am always fascinated by people's um, career trajectories. Mm-hmm. My career is completely accidental and in flux, pretty much at all times. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the new norm. As like, f- we freelancing becomes even if you are on staff, you have multiple staff positions and you have to interweave. Oh yeah, you have to do a little of everything in order to to get it. So I'm I'm curious about. Um, uh, what led what what laid the ground for Pinky Swear? Well, our origin story, which we um, you know which we tell often, is that you know we were the, my my partner Allison and I were classmates at Studio Theater, hmm. and we also had several other classmates who we enjoyed um, taking classes and working with on scenes and everything. You know, so we're all undergoing training to try and break in. <clears throat> and find a way to do some professional theater. And so to support each other, um, as the Fringe Festival came around, um, you know, I, I started doing shows in the second year of the festival, just acting in them. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of ours, uh, I think it was probably like the, man, was it like the third year or something? Uh, a friend of ours was in a show, and it was written by a man and directed by the writer, and it was about a man who was a pretty good stand-in for the for the writer, um, surrounded by women, and like I think they <laughs> a review referred to, and this is mean, but like the, a review referred to the guy you know in the show as like a poor man's Paul Giamatti, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so very like <clears throat> nebbishy sort of nerdy yeah. sort was the character, um, and all of these women in the show wanted this guy 
And it was weird because <laughs> they, you know, there's all these like attractive women actors and, you know, our friend played a lesbian with an eye patch who pulled a knife. And, like, there's no reason for any of it. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I, I still don't understand what he was trying to accomplish with that character and with some of the ways the others were drawn. But none of them were realistic in <laughs> any way. And, you know, and I think it was an and then I woke up kind of thing at the, mm. at the end. But, like, uh, come on, man. That So we left there outraged at the fact that this is the kind of work women in DC are willing to take just to be able to get on stage and ply their craft. And, you know, we, so we stood outside, you know, grumbling about it and feeling bad for our friend having to be in this like not good play. And, uh, so, you know, we stood outside and we're like, God, something needs to be done about this. Somebody should do something. And the conversation eventually went to, you know, well, maybe we should do something. Yeah, yeah. And so though both of us are sort of, you know, jaded, you know, jaded crotchety women, <laughs> we had never pinky sworn. I don't remember ever pinky swearing on anything in my life. But both of us were also really bad at follow through. You know, you plan to do something and then you just don't do it. You know, you put it off and things. So we were like, how do we hold each other accountable to this? Mm-hmm. So we, we pinky swore on it. And then um, I think Allison was doing a show with with Kimberly Gilbert, and she was like, "That should be the name of the company because naming things is always really yeah agonizing." Yeah. Um, so yeah, we decided that we would make a point of providing an opportunity, and we were going to do it one year. We were just going to do a fringe show, and that would be that. And you know, so we did this um, show, a freak show by Carson Kreitzer. Um, who's in Minneapolis, and we found it in a, an anthology of, like, club thumb um, plays. And it's, it was about a 19th century sideshow. And, you know, so there was a woman with no arms and no legs and a, a former dog-faced girl and a human salamander and, you know, the, the ringmaster and everything. Um, we had a pinhead we put in a little cage and <laughs> stuff. So it was, you know, it was this sort of atmospheric show we did in the tent was the first year that we did any sh- show in the tent and it was brutal because we're wearing like wool oh gosh everything. yeah you know and we don't know necessarily what we're doing but we got Lise Bruno from Taffety Punk to direct it so we had a, a big leg up with that and it came out really well and audiences seemed to really respond to it and you know it was overall a really good experience and so once you have a taste of succeeding with that, you, you kind of want to do it again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the second year was a little less successful. Um, we had a, another play by Carson um, called uh, Be Here Now, and it was sort of an updated sort of homage to Three Sisters. Okay. Um, and that was way over in the, the mountain venue, which is in that church. And I think, there, you know, that worked against us, but also the sort of the, the quiet nature of the show. Um, and then the third year, um, you know, coming back once again, because we couldn't stop ourselves from <laughs> yeah. doing it, um, we came back with our first Cabaret Triple X show, mm-hmm. um, which we did for four years. And we also did, a, you know, we're also doing a, you know, a Cabaret Triple Xmas this year as a sort of homage to that, even though we killed off our characters <laughs> in, the last, in the last show. But, you know, as, and that was what put us on the map mm-hmm. and started us going toward 
becoming a full-time company that produced outside of Fringe. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the thing about it is, is that you, you do go in, none of us had any theater management background. You know, there were those of us who, you know, I was an English major in college and, you know, Allison was a psychology major. We had, you know, our, our friends from studio who co- comprised the, you know, the core company at first were from all different things, some in theater, some in not, but primarily we were all actors. And, you know, though I had worked in the business world for, for some years, none of, almost none of that applied to putting up a show. <laughs> I mean, the only thing it was helpful with was maybe marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really learn as we go. And we're still doing that, although I, I keep meaning to talk to other artistic directors in the area to maybe stop reinventing the wheel mm-hmm. and ask them questions on how they handle things. But as, as time has gone on, we, 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 we realized like, you know, so we kind of by accident stumbled into having a, a bona fide theater company. And, <laughs> you know, I'm still surprised sometimes when we have meetings that, you know, I have authority to make decisions about what we do. And, you know, and I, I like to have input from a lot of people. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying like, we will do this play from on high. But it, it is sort of amazing to realize that now we've been doing this since 2009 and you know from an idea in 2008 <laughs> it's like what what so seven years ago we decided to do this once <laughs> <laughs> and and now you know now here we are yeah it's also been really gratifying because the community the theater community in dc has been really welcoming and especially us upstarts who i mean really by and large came from fringe so i give Julianne Brianza a lot of credit for starting this festival that made people feel empowered to put on their own shows and and some went forth to to do this you know multiple times a year so you know the upstart community has really been pretty close-knit and we all have different missions but we all share the same issues of like you know how hard it is to get a stage manager, yeah. especially at the last minute. Yep. And, you know, how hard it is to get the designers that, that you want. How to plan ahead so that you can actually market your show months ahead of time instead of weeks ahead of right. time. Right, absolutely. Or a year ahead of time. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, so we, we all share those um, those same things. Hi, Marlo. Um, we all share those same issues yeah. and, you know, can commiserate and also help each other out. And I think that's that's hugely important. And, you know, I, I felt, you know, social media helped me feel super welcome into that right away. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's different than with acting because you're constantly dealing with the rejection of going and either doing a great audition and not knowing why you didn't get it right. and or doing a stinker of an audition and, you know, and knowing as you walked out the door you know, as you Monday morning quarterback it for weeks afterward. <laughs> oh, to be able to stop doing that. Uh, <laughs> you know, that that you're, you know, you're not going to get all the parts, but when you're actually part of a company, you are always engaged in some way. Yeah. Um, and that, that has been really, um, that has been really sort of world changing for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a way to feel part of things in the way that I never felt part of much when I was working in the corporate world. You've got your one company doing your one thing. I worked in web advertising. So you're basically selling nothing. You're selling pixels that will appear for a little while. (laughs) But it's not 
tangible. Yeah. And it's not going to change anybody's life. Right. Whereas I feel like theater and art changes people's lives. And, you know, those times, like with Tiny House Plays, where you have this whole group of people, each having both the same experience and a different one, you know, in that sense of starting at different houses, but as any audience does, and having that communication connection is, you know, for me, it's like a drug, (laughs) you know, whether you're producing it or whether you're acting in it or doing some other job to realize that you are creating this moment that will never happen again. Right, yeah. And that, you know, that feeling of, of connection is really, really amazing. Yeah. And it's just something that I would never want to give up. That's, uh, it, what it's, you talk about uh, reinventing the wheel. I just, I have this conversation all the time with mm-hmm. people, um, because it's, it, what's interesting is the way in which it is both necessary and unnecessary to mm-hmm. reinvent the wheel. Right. Because, on some level, I have this dream, germ of an idea where like all of these small theaters don't have exactly the same needs. Mm-hmm. If they, if we could find a way to create like a production company that had its own shop and that could, yeah. like, you could always work with the same people over and over again. <laughs> Um, and then that shop has loads of work all the time because it's like ten theater companies all need the same thing, and that mm-hmm. that becomes a sustain that that like that becomes sustainable and that's thinking outside of the box and, and that requires a, le- a level of uh, a pretty high level initiative to, to get it all together because it's not necessary to reinvent that wheel if we could find a way to make it work. Right, it's adding a feature to the wheel right. that <laughs> did not appear there before. Right, exactly. <laughs> and now that I'm a freelancer, I'm, I'm seeing that all the time. I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, this person is asking, to is the ME for four different companies. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to make that a little more regular a little bit more predictable a little less ad hoc yeah i I love that i would would love to be part of that you know because you can have a a staff of you know multiple people on the same kinds of work where they were all engaged (laughs) at the same time because there's you know there is a finite number of shows that you can do production managing you can only direct one at a time (laughs) but for you know for a shop that would be so awesome i i know a lot of theater companies who would jump at that kind of idea um so you know do that okay (laughs) (laughs) see what i can do Uh, (laughs) consider the podcast uh, doing the rounds and (laughs) getting getting hearts and minds yeah advanced market research exactly (laughs) yeah i I, seriously it's it's hard to find building space i've had sets built in my backyard (laughs) um we've we've had sets built with people you know who had access to places like the shop over at shakespeare Mm -hmm. or the shop over at arena yeah um you know where the goodness of their hearts they they say like fine you can build that thing um you know when you're done with the thing that you're supposed to do that we're being you know paying you for yeah it would be great to have some regularity with things and to have a stable of people who you could be predictable with yeah you know one of my dreams is that um you know to have a space that is not dedicated to one theater yeah but is you know a, a bunch of theaters collectively being able to do their seasons and i know that Cultural DC does that with Source. Right. Um, and, you know, also has their rotation of people that they do for Flashpoint with their program every year. Mm-hmm. So there's room for more of those. And I think on a smaller scale, like I, you know, the dream is to have, you know, a 50 to 60 seat black box mm-hmm. that's very flexible and rehearsal rooms, multiple rehearsal rooms, so that you have um, the ability to have more than one show rehearsing at a time. 
and you know and some office space that mm-hmm. people can sit in and and do the stuff that they need to do while being at the location right um and you know a set of equipment that is is shared among people you know and you know like a storage space to put flats in so yeah. that you don't have to rebuild those suckers every time every time yeah you know a, a platform that can be used multiple times and um yeah you know so that that's that's what I would like to do. And, you know, my husband is very encouraging about doing that, but I also don't want to manage a building. Right. Yeah. So until such time that, you know, we can collectively pool resources to hire someone whose specialty is managing the building, um, you know, so that there's somebody who can coordinate, you know, who's got the space at a certain time. Um, you know, and, and maybe almost like doing it like a, a co-op or something mm-hmm. where yeah. you buy into the space right. and you agree to work at it at certain times. Um, you know, until such time that we can organize that, I wouldn't want to just own a place right. and be sitting there saying like, literally, I do not know what I am doing managing a building. <laughs> <laughs> I can't fix a toilet. <laughs> I can plunge it, but I can't fix it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to spend all day you know, dealing with scheduling right. rental and everything because, you know, ultimately what you want to do is have a space to make the art. Yeah. Um, and, and though I'd be willing to do some of that stuff, I, I can't do it all. Yeah. Um, and, and also do, you know, anything else. Well, that's the, and that's the part where I think for regional theaters, some of them do need to reinvent the wheel mm-hmm. because the wheel that they work on is kind of broken. Yeah. Um, and Where they, they have a very large lump on the wheel called millions of dollars the, on their space. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, so because we had the struggle when I when I was on staff at Shakespeare, mm-hmm. like you're, you're dealing with Sydney Harmon Hall, a new space mm-hmm. and uh, a space that they don't they don't even still kind of don't get artistically mm-hmm. what works here, what doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. Who wants this? Like, who do I? who do I talk to to get somebody to fill a space when we aren't mm-hmm. in here? And so the struggle with that was partially because they, I mean, Shakespeare theater came from such a tiny nucleus over at Folger and doing all of that stuff. Right. Um, part of their brain is still there. Like mm-hmm. we're this theater company and we make art, mm-hmm. but you're also a building manager right. because Shakespeare at the moment has a, a shared space for their carps and their props. Mm-hmm. There's a storage facility for costumes. Mm-hmm. I believe a separate storage facility for props. Mm-hmm. Production offices with rehearsal space across the street with a, a costume shop above it. Mm-hmm. They have a theater down the street from another theater. <laughs> right. So you're all of a sudden you're like, well, actually you have eight buildings. Yeah. You aren't a th- just a theater company. Right. And they've got the space down in Barracks Row and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, so it's, it's a challenge I think a lot of them haven't like institutionally woken up to. Mm-hmm. And I would love to, yeah, I've had that collective, I, that exact thought, like the co-op idea is the way to get people mm-hmm. to sort of buy in, be assured of of production time, mm-hmm. but also manage it in such a way that there's no dark time for the space. It is, it is, yeah. Which is, the that's the hardest dark. thing, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, but there's enough going on in this town that you would think that you could do that either with people, you know, renting the space for classes. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I could fill a space with improv <laughs> on nights that a show wasn't right. going on. I know that I can, um, you know, because, you know, wit doesn't have their space all of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they've been roving to different places. They've done something at Atlas. They've done some mm-hmm. stuff at DCAC. 
But I know that, you know, if they had something that was located well, that they would also consider that. Yeah. So, you know, and there's, you know, there's a couple of little improv theaters who have opened around the, the city. And, you know, the capacity is there. And I think with the larger theaters, they have spaces that are dark a lot. Um, but it's so expensive for them to even turn the lights on yeah. and staff, you know, because they probably don't want just, you know, anybody just roaming around the yeah. building. Um no matter how trustworthy and, and innocent that I look, um, you know, they, they don't want to have any damage and yeah. all of that kind of stuff yeah, done. exactly. And, you know, so it becomes completely unaffordable for any of us to rent the yeah. space. And we, we all wish that they would, we, we wish that they would donate it sometimes um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to, you know, encourage growth. And, yeah. But we understand yeah. that when you have a space that costs $20 million dollars, you're still paying that. Yeah, <laughs> you're still right. paying that mortgage. Yeah, and you know you you can't necessarily continue to um, lose money on having it um, staffed. Although at the same time, it's sort of like you could also make even a pittance. You could actually make a small, steady stream of, of income on that. Yeah, um, and a, a couple of theaters around town, and mo- most notably Woolly Mammoth, are you know they're they're great about renting the rehearsal yeah. hall in their classrooms. And, you know, they, they've been very uh, helpful for both fundraisers and also for, you know, small shows. So, you know, and that space is affordable, especially if you're a 501c3. Right. Um, so I, I would love to see more people do that kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it has to do with um, whether you know somebody on the staff who can, can vouch for you. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that's, you know, those, those are all concerns and it, it isn't like we don't understand from the small community that you know that it's an incredible it's a it's a monster to manage all of those places yeah. and you know that it, you have so many other priorities ahead of you you know some little theater coming in and being like oh, is, it please? <laughs> is you know is low on the priority list yeah. and yeah. you know I, I love the idea of everyone being altruistic and everything but i also understand the realities right of it. yeah i do it's one of those situations where like I, and I see this a lot in like marketing departments mm-hmm. where there's just a lot of duplication of effort between yes. between them. And um, so opportunities are lost because collectively they would see data and register trends and being able be able to use analytics effectively needs you need a bigger pool of data than just your own theater sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that they could probably realize a significant revenue stream of that if if they had the time to sit down and do okay. the analysis yeah. but they don't so mm-hmm. they they can't put a number on it mm-hmm. and that really cuz cuz I think you're right like it wouldn't feel like altruism if you could be like but over 10 years it's $100,000 right right that it's it that it's it's worthwhile in the long run yeah and i i you know i mean that that actually gives me an idea of you know is there somebody out there who would want to you know do sadly on a volunteer basis or or maybe with a or, you know, or possibly like with a, um, you know, an infusion by a collective of, of people to see if there wasn't a way to say, you know, look, I'm not going to take any of your time, but if you allow me to like just look at the books and look at some rental, you know, models, mm-hmm. you know, whether that could, whether that could happen. So that'd be actually a very interesting project too. You are full of good ideas. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, that's good because Thanksgiving is coming up, and I have uh, I have a lot of interesting ideas for the for Thanksgiving meal as well. Yes. <laughs> I uh, there, I found uh, a um, a recipe for uh, dressing mm-hmm. slash stuffing. It's not actually stuffing because it's not going to the bird, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, that you finish in the waffle iron. What? 
Yeah. Stuffing waffles, they're all crispy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, everybody likes the crispy part. Yeah, that's right. So. <laughs> exactly right. so. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully right. they'll come out. That's, like, that's my hope. Yeah. <laughs> Grease that sucker really well. <laughs> you could use yeah. turkey drippings on it. And, oh, and, and that's then no an... vegetarian would ever, would ever use it again. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be all over that. But. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Um, you said one thing too about I, I just wanted to circle back one more time. No, no, no this because, is great. Because um, I've had this thought for a while, and I don't know if I've had this conversation with anybody in the theater community. But you talk about selling pixels, yeah. And this, so this is this is way off the reservation, but yeah, I've always had this thought because they study <laughs> Marx and and, mm-hmm. and like German cultural history. Mm-hmm. Marx thought that there would be a revolution because of this alienation from their product that mm-hmm. that the worker, you know, the worker who puts together a Rolls-Royce cannot afford a Rolls-Royce mm-hmm. and that will eventually wear on them so much. I, I mean, and you're getting down into commodity levels like they can't afford the shirt that they're making right. kind of thing and that will cause them to revolt. Mm-hmm. Um and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But our new digital world yep. has a level of alien that at least was tactile mm-hmm. and they had a sense of something I'm being created this thing and i have to give it away yeah. yeah so they they knew the process they saw the factory like they they actually touched the things that they were doing yeah they couldn't mm-hmm. buy them later but they they knew they knew it was up mm-hmm. but when you're managing pure information that you mm-hmm. like and access to the possibility of information your whole job is to sell bandwidth for example it's yeah. like there you you can't touch you, it. You can't touch it at all. Mm-hmm. And you just have a series of numbers telling you what what is happening. And mm-hmm. I'm I just find it very interesting to see how that will play out culturally. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that that was, you know, that was the crisis that eventually led me to wanting to leave um, that kind of job is that I, I just felt that, you know, you know, as, as a worker in that industry, I felt that what I was doing was so ephemeral in in like the worst way um you know that that the numbers are telling you that someone out there is clicking on this ad for something um you know yet you you see the (laughs) you you see the backlash out in the you know out in the consumer world of like you know you are the one who puts up the pop-up ads (laughs) i hate the pop-up ads and you know and, and feeling like guilty about that but you know, it it was also a a very it, the alienation is is really real, in in that you just feel like you can never know if you're having any impact at all. Mm-hmm. The only time in my marketing my web marketing career that I ever felt like a tangible um, impact was we had a, um, a contest for for the you know now sullied reputation Volkswagen. <laughs> Um, who hopefully weren't doing that at the time. Um, this is the early 2000s, but um, and you know we we had people write in an essay on why they you know would want to take this adventure for um, to do road trips with their cars. Oh yeah, and um, that was the only time I felt an impact because I got to go and meet these people and sort of you know do a ride along for part of the trip and see what it was like for people to actually be experiencing these adventure vacations, which is what the website that I worked on was for and you know and that was really cool and it's my favorite you know memory of working in that industry uh just because there was an actual human connection (laughs) but otherwise you're just putting in lines of code pictures are popping up and you know you you see the budgets that these companies have that are no joke 
and and realize that like they're spending it on nothing. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think people are still trying to figure out what the impact of advertising on the web and and what channels work and and how to re-engage with people as things change rapidly. Yeah. So social media coming into the, you know, the foreground of of things that people spend hours on every day. Yeah. You know, how do you monetize that? Right. And, you know, especially in the, you know, with the knowledge that people do not like advertising (laughs) and also really do not like it when, you know, their data and what they post and and what they write is then, you know, finding ways to target ads toward you. Right. Um, And I always feel a little weird when I realize I'm clicking on an ad because it is accurate to something that I am interested in. (laughs) And it's a little spooky. You know, like, oh, there's all these, or, you know... Having searched for, for example, my my best friend got married um, last year, and she, uh, you know, was sending pictures of like Pinterest boards and stuff of of things she was interested in for the wedding. So as I looked at those things, I then noticed like in my Facebook feed, you know, a ton of of bridal stuff in there, and I've been married for sixteen years, so there's no reason for me to be, you know, to be targeted to as as a bride. Um, but yet there it was. Right. And, you know, in some ways, yes, do you want to look at ads that are, do you want to look at content that is, is relevant to your interests? But in other ways, it's, it feels like someone is, is watching it's you. spying on you, yeah. And, you know, it's an algorithm. But it, once again, the algorithm is a, is a thing you can't touch. Yeah. Um, you, I, I do not understand how the calculations work. Everyone does it differently. Mm. So, you know, I think that's what, you know, to make the, the connection, like, that's a very big difference from what I do now, mm-hmm. where it's all about people um, and all about relationships and tangible things. So, you know, it, it, is, it is interesting. And I don't know what the tipping point would be yeah. for when people would grow too tired of dealing with this, you know, dealing with this light on the screen that you know that that is your work. Um, you know, I think people who work in editorial probably are comforted by the fact that when they see stats on that, they know people have read it. Right. Um, but they don't, you know. But they don't know how you know you don't always know how how much they read. Our attention spans are so short. Um, I feel so guilty, but I, I, I'm. I'm I have become like addicted to the fire hose of information that yeah, is Twitter. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, that's a long read. I didn't realize that was, I didn't want to invest that time. Boom. I'm like, <laughs> I'm gonna go long back read. This is like five pages, dude. That's right. not a long <laughs> Or you, yeah, you scroll down like two screens. Yeah. And, and you know, it seems like a big investment of time. Yeah. I, it is really weird. And I, I jackrap it all over the place all day. And I know that my attention span and my, you know, attention to detail has suffered. Yeah. Um, yet. It is so hard to break that. It's so hard not to pull out your phone. Somebody, you know, you're out at a restaurant, person leaves the table to go to the bathroom, and you're like, immediately must yeah. have, you yeah. know, cannot ever just sit quietly. Yeah. Um, realizing that if I decide to watch TV, I also, you know, which is on a streaming channel, which recommends things that I might like, right. that I'm also sitting there checking Facebook or writing emails and everything. It's like, you know, I, t- <laughs> I turn to those adult coloring books to get myself to at least not look at another screen while a screen was on. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, you know, something... The, the popularity of those is actually an interesting fad. Yeah. I mean, who knows how long they'll be popular. But, 
you know, it is relaxing in a very different way mm -hmm. than reading stuff on the screen. Um, you know, I'm glad that I still enjoy reading novels because, you know, at least that is something consistent you are doing for for an hour at a right. time yeah. um, without popping over to the other screen because, you know, there's a tab open and you can see a little yep. one up yep. here yep. that, you know, you now have replies and, yes. <laughs> you know, someone else has posted who, who you like to follow. And, um, yeah, yeah, so that that is where the, uh, <laughs> the actual paper book in your hand is, yeah. is now oh, an odd rarity. Yeah. But I, and I... I, I, there's a lot of technology around us, mm -hmm. including my laptop and this mm -hmm. fancy audio interface. Like mm -hmm. I'm a nerd. Uh, I, I get into that kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. they, I don't have an e-reader, a Kindle or anything like mm -hmm. that because it's still important to me to read the book mm -hmm. physically, Yeah, which is kooky and kind of dumb. No, it's not. My <laughs> husband will not read yeah. books on an e-reader. Um, I have a Kindle that I got at a, uh, a fundraiser silent auction and I like to bring it on vacation and I also if I've run out of things that I feel like reading it's that instant like I oh, can yeah. have another book now and um you know so I do read on that a lot but there's a very I think it's a different experience yeah you know if I'm if I'm on vacation it means I can load up a bunch of books and not load up my luggage right but at the same time if you're sitting on a beach you know you've got sun glare and everything like that that does not affect a paper book <laughs> um you know, so I, I do still buy yeah. a lot of books. We we have more books than we have room for on shelves in this house, and uh, you know, and and that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. I think that's you know because you can always go back to it and and thumb through it. Yeah, and there isn't the temp like there isn't the temptation to jump ahead on things or to um, you know or or to necessarily give up on something because well you know it was it was ninety nine cents or something right. like that. Right. Um, you know, but to sit and, and stay engaged with it that, you know, and that tactile sensation yeah. of turning pages. And I always love the smell of books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's, and what's it, I, I have moved around a lot, so I had to, I have had to dispossess myself of quite a few books, mm -hmm. but I, I do remember growing up in a house full of books, uh, mm -hmm. um, and I don't, and I don't even know what philosophy my dad and mom had when putting them together. And I mm -hmm. kind of don't think they had a philosophy yeah, on like, it. Oh, I want to read this, yeah. <laughs> but being able to pick out a book at random that I would, that was just handy because it was there, yep. introduced me to like Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, which mm -hmm. I no one ever talks about. Well, they <laughs> they they did in my in my world history class. I was like, oh, I know that. That's awesome. <laughs> I have already read that book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in college, that that happened a lot. It's like, oh, there's just, I read a lot as a kid, and I didn't read any of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and, and that's totally true. I mean, that, my favorite thing as a child was to go to the library and yeah. take a stack of books out. Um, you know, and my parents were always really encouraging about reading. And I could read at a very early age, so I've, I've read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I was an English major, so, right, yeah. you know, I'm sure that I've probably read, you know, a couple of hundred books throughout my college career. Yeah. And, you know, and still have, have maintained that love of, of things. And, you know, as you, as you advance with, you know, with reading, you know, now I read a lot of plays. Yeah. Um, you know, and plays are a, a different animal because... You know, when I'm in a bookstore, I was in uh, The Strand in New York mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, um, which is amazing, and you can spend a bazillion years there. It's kind of <laughs> like Powell's out in Oregon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, plays are interesting because I'll take, a, like, a big, you know, stack of them off the shelf while I'm browsing, and, you know, you can read 
you know, if I if I read five to ten pages of a play and I'm not interested in what's going on yet, I am not going to buy it and I'm not going to consider producing it because yeah. I'm not into it. Um, you know, if if I look at them, I look at all of the character breakdowns for my company. I need to have something that has a, a significant proportion of women in, mm-hmm. in significant roles. If it doesn't have that, I don't even look at it. And that's not to say that I won't go see plays that have, you know, that are men's stories or anything like that. It's just that when I'm looking at things to buy, yeah, you know, so it's, it's less of a thing. Like if I read the first 10 pages of a novel and the page 11 is suddenly sucking me in, then I'll, I'll go with it. Um, but 10 pages of a play, you've got, you know... A, a pretty significant portion of the show already having happened. That's ten minutes of of ninety. You know, so you, yeah. you tend to put them aside. Well, that's a standard in the industry too for readers. Like yeah. in in for plays and for screenplays. Like mm-hmm. don't you don't even have to read it. And and when the studios mill through, mm-hmm. they don't. Like their readers are so there's hundreds of scripts and they have to get through it all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in five to ten pages, if it's not there, it's mm-hmm. not gonna be there. It's 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 very interesting and I struggle with it as a as a playwright as well. Mm-hmm. Like I don't playwrights the wrong thing. I I write plays, mm-hmm. but whatever. Yeah, that's the, you know, that's the term for Well it. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not been yeah. Um yes. but is no, because I I've read I've been a, I interned as a reader for for script services before and stuff mm-hmm. like that and um and I it's like twenty twenty five screenplays from people who are you know like me just rank amateurs and just mm-hmm. trying to break into the business mm-hmm. and it was remarkable like a, a novel can change and it feels like on a dime yes and there's a depth and um an accumulation of a, of inertia that like mm-hmm. can make page fifteen make feel like the previous 14 mm-hmm. were totally worth it like yeah. dickens does this all the time like right yeah you know that's, like that's a really great example oh i get it um and good plays and good screenplays will do that but mm-hmm. the batting average i saw was remarkable if it's bad in five pages it will not get better yeah yeah it's 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 very predictive well and it makes you it makes you really wonder how a lot of crappy movies that come out right a lot of crap that comes out <laughs> And I think I think that must just come down to marketing mm. that it's pure revenue driven like this is not going to be a good movie but people will buy tickets to it anyway. Yeah. And that's you know and that's that's kind of a fascinating thing because you know there's so much that goes into selecting and and putting you know putting up a film or putting on a play that you know that started you know that starts with just that reading and I mean a lot of times in reviews you know, and th- this is different for plays than it is for movies. A lot of times in reviews, it'll be kind of a book report about, mm-hmm. you know, the whole plot of the show and and not really talk about, you know, what the, the cohesive nature of the production was. Um, you know, and a lot of times I'll find that the, you know, the, the review, if it's poor, is just because that reviewer didn't like the script. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, it didn't matter if, if, you know, if the script is bad, they don't really care how well you right. acted it. Right. Um, or how, you know, how you rose above it or anything right. like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I often wonder if the experience for me, I've rarely read a play prior to seeing it unless it's a revival of something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try not to read it until afterward if something coming up and, and it looks interesting. Um, you know, and I always wonder if those first 10 minutes 
of the show, you know, are anything like reading the first 10 pages of the play. Um, Because, you know, would I have been interested in this one if I had just picked it up? And if I'm really enjoying the show, would it have been the same thing? Or would it have been like, I don't know about that? Because of what the company did with it. Right. You know, and, and maybe with some of the plays or films, like the scripts are interest or vaguely interesting, but what they did with it as far as like the action or the costumes or the actors or something, then, you know, then it suddenly is worth seeing. Yeah. That's the struggle I have when I, when I write as well, because it, the, the conundrum was of like, how, how detailed do you make the action? Like, do you have, mm-hmm. how much stage direction do you have? Yeah. And, and how much will the director pay attention? Yeah, exactly. Like what? Mm-hmm. Especially since the way that I would, this play would probably be produced would be like unsolicited or won some some juried thing. Like, mm-hmm. but without a production, there's so much life in a play that comes from the act of producing it. Yes, that like it can feel poor on the page, mm-hmm. but come to life because the director and the actors believed in something that they saw that the, maybe the playwright didn't even see. Oh yeah, and it's that that that. It's just so uncertain and so magical kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, plays are meant to be spoken. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when I was in, you know, when I was an English major, you know, reading Chekhov, I found it boring yeah. and impenetrable, <laughs> and I didn't know who anyone was at any given time yeah. because of all the nicknames and everything. But Chekhov in performance, you know, just in my scene study as an actor and watching other people play these roles is amazing it's it's really good because so much subtext is brought in from the action you know in 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 living you know mm-hmm. people on the stage actually yeah. saying things you know and, and i mean you could do this stuff without you know much of a set or costuming or anything but the relationships are so interesting when you actually see them acted mm-hmm. versus on the page where it can lay a little bit dead yeah that's yeah that's exactly and, how i would put it yeah and, you know, and that's that's an interesting thing because, you know, with new plays, you know, we developed The Last Burlesque with Steve Spotswood for several years, um, you know, and, and, you know, he's the playwright. So, I mean, he's the one who is like eventually coming to what it will be and, and making changes. But, you know, with with the reactions he was getting from the readings we did both in-house and, and like at the Page to Stage Festival and... You know, for him writing stage directions and then handing it to a director, I mean, you want one that you trust with that first thing. Yeah. But, you know, the be-all, end-all of it is not the production we put up. Right. For the playwright, you know, for him and for every playwright, you also want to see how it lives again. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I had, like, for the Women's Voices Festival, my, my one major critique was that everything had to be a world premiere. And oh, because, I did not know that. Yeah, everything had to be a world premiere, and it would have been easier for smaller companies to be able to, you know, get, uh, you know, do a play by a woman. Because playwrights don't just want one production. Yeah, yeah. Every playwright wants to see their play produced over and over again. They want it to become that thing that, you know, that ends up in seasons all over the country. Yeah. And so, you know, the world premiere thing, which which just wasn't just like women's voices, but is so often the case with, um, you know, other festivals. It I think it really, it's really a drag yeah. for, I mean, like the playwright is excited to have their play produced, but if it goes into a box and is never done again, 
well, you know, what what was that effort for? Yeah. And, you know, that, that's the thing that, I, that I've thought about a lot when we're developing plays is like, how can we develop something that people will want to do? And so that you can see it differently, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the magic of it too, is that every production is different. And that's why you never want to see a show, decide that you're going to produce it years later and have it have anything to do with the production value of the first one, even if they had great ideas. Right. You also want to have new ideas for it and try new things. Yeah. And, you know, so, so, you know, breaking into the, um, you know, getting a production done, um, is is just the first coup in that (laughs) you know you know you you, you've written it you feel satisfied with it you've you know finished it a production company takes it up and there's i mean with a with a brand new play there's always adjustments that happen when it's when it's up because you get to actually see it yeah (laughs) um you get to hear it out loud um but you know that the the actual winning part is to see it done again yeah and I think it would be, you know, I don't write. Um, typically, I, I collaborate with people that, you know, we end up with a show and everything. But, um, but I don't sit down and write by myself because mm-hmm. I'm too much of a, I'm too much of an of an improviser that I like to discover uh, yeah. things mm-hmm. as you're in the room brainstorming. Um, but, uh, you know, when whenever you, you know, whenever you've created something new. You know, you, you want to see what somebody else has done with it. Yeah. Um, what somebody else's idea will be. And, you know, that's that's the magic of working with a director the first time. And it's then the real magic is to go to a place across the country that picked it up, is paying you for the rights, <laughs> and suddenly seeing this whole new thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some playwrights are horrified with what they see. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure others are just blown away by yeah. how much more this has become yeah. than what they started with. So there's, you know, there's just, um, there's so much to be said for actually producing a play that's been produced once or twice and, you know, how much, how much meaning that has to the people who've, you know, put in the work on it. Yeah. The, um, I, I, I forget who said it. I think I saw it on Twitter though, that somebody was like, what if we gave, new plays the same generosity of interpretation that we give to Shakespeare like Mm -hmm. let's just assume good intent here and like really dig for the meat before we assume that this is a bad line yeah um and that that whole thing I think is also encouraging like people are waking up the idea like just turning up one new world premiere and then never returning to it again is not a useful activity for us right and I love the rolling road premiere that Mm -hmm. yeah that the Oh, yeah. I mean, like, um, I worked with Dog and Pony. Um, I went to Cleveland with them for uh, four weeks um, in 2000. Was it 2004? I, <laughs> I don't know when things happened. It was, yeah, I think it was 2014 in the spring. And uh, we did their show, A Killing Game. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to see the first iteration of that. And the iteration that went to Cleveland is so vastly different and still different still from the version that we did um, when I, I worked with them in the fall of 2013 up at um, the uh, Black Box up in Silver Spring. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, you know, their process I've always found fascinating because they change stuff. Nothing is ever finished with them. Mm-hmm. And as they are starting to pass things like Beer Town 
um, which is great from the get-go. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about that. Their process of handing that off to a new company to do that must be fascinating to watch because they have to then let go of this extremely personal product that they all worked on yeah. and and be generous enough to allow that to breathe in someone else's hands and you know so so i think that's really interesting is that you know if you take it and do an interpretation that's unexpected mm-hmm. um because some and i think sometimes the playwright has an intention for it but doesn't you know doesn't realize because it's been in their head and their heart for so long that there's other things to do with it yeah so that's actually a really good idea um once again (laughs) you know having just done a um production of uh, a rep of henry four one and two with brave spirits that was completely gender flipped we had oh yeah i heard about this one the men's parts but we also interpreted it as a fully matriarchal society and sort of came up with rules for this society so that it wasn't just changing pronouns. Mm -hmm. It was really changing how that world worked. Um, And, you know, it wasn't like changes in the text that really did anything, you know, major that was changes of pronouns and titles and things like that. But it was also really about our intentions behind it um, of, you know, what would it be like if this had been a matriarchal society? Mm -hmm. And, you know, doing that interpretation was different than setting it in the 50s or setting it somewhere else um, or doing it, you know, with uh, with puppets or something like that. Like all all completely valid and interesting choices. But, you know, doing this this gender change um, in a much more comprehensive way uh, was a fascinating way, fascinating way to look at it. And after finishing the rehearsal process and the production, it is hard for me to look at these characters and think that they are men in oh, the original text. Yeah. Like you really start to see this character as a woman during it. So Hotspur is this, is a woman now that I have like lived with that for a while. I was Falstaff and like Falstaff being a woman changes a lot, mm, especially yeah. um, since every single reference to Falstaff and nearly every line directed to Falstaff talks about how bad the character yes. is. And I had to wear a fat suit, but before I got that, it was starting to be a complex. You oh, know? yeah. Um, of like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> is this me? Um, you know, uh, you know the <laughs> uh, Charlene, the uh, artistic director, was like, I didn't want anyone to think we were calling them in because we thought they were fat. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so that part was really um, a challenge, but also very enlightening. And how is the audience experience really different? seeing you know just that one little detail um of women saying this to women yeah yeah um versus i i never really thought about it when you know when i've seen falstaff as a man and men talking about it it it's like it doesn't it didn't bother me and i only really started to see it all light up you know like every single reference like just lights up on the page and said wow Wow, Shakespeare must the audience must have really just loved fat jokes because like they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they are everywhere. There. <laughs> yep. So you know, doing you know, doing something you know, we we've asked from time to time playwrights if it was okay to have a character played by a woman if it was a man. Right. Um, and and always respect the playwright's perspective. I mean, you know, their work is what they is their work is their work. Your interpretation is your interpretation, but. If you've written something specific, 
you know, and I think that goes for, you know, gender, particularly for race and ethnicity. Um, and you know, and, and other intents that they have, you want to, you want to honor that. Um, when we did bondage by David Henry Wong, um, there was talk about, you know, what if the races were different under the suits and, you know, we, we asked the publisher, um, you know, not necessarily with the intention of doing it, but we figured it was, it was a question worth asking. And, you know, it was definitely a, like, I really want this to be a white person and an Asian person. Mm. Um, and I think the play is definitely geared toward that. Right. Um, but you know, that's important to him as the playwright, that this is an experience about a Chinese person and a white person talking about race, um, while not knowing the others. Right. You know, and then there's like, you know, the, the news of (laughs) Martin Luther King being portrayed as by a white guy, which is just insane to me. That's insane. Um, you know, and there are few enough parts out there <laughs> for African American yeah. actors that you know why take away something that is um, uh, about a, a black person? You know, what possibly could a white person bring to that role? Yeah. Um, <laughs> privilege is the only thing yeah. that they bring to the role. So <laughs> yeah, I was blown away when I saw that. Uh, uh, I think Howard Sherman had posted something about it, and yeah, I dug into something. it, and I was like, "That really happened? Yeah. Somebody really did that?" No, his his stuff is great. Yeah. Going into you know delving into things like um, you know especially schools banning plays. Oh yeah, for for gay characters, it's like, are you kidding me? This is 2015, and this is still happening for something like almost Maine. That was one of oh, the ones that's that was right. that was mind blowing. That was mind blowing. I mean, that is a sweet little play. Yeah. It is not like hardcore gay porn. No. You know, I mean, that's, no. you know, which you high school wouldn't have done in the first place. Yeah, right. I mean, you're used to high school sort of sanitizing some things, but like, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the gay people exist. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> and wouldn't it be great, you know, and that when we did Bondage... You know, the BDSM community is... Oh, is, yeah, that's interesting. And a lot of them came out to see the show because, you know, like you know, like people who are, you know, gay or black or Asian or, you know, or any any other ethnicity, you want to see yourself on stage. Yeah, you want to see stories that reflect on your experience, too. People seeing themselves, and that was, you know, one comment that... Um, Allison made about Henry Four was that she could finally see herself in a Shakespeare role when she saw, you know, like the Hotspur role. She could finally actually say, I identify with this now. And that makes the connection with the show much stronger. And so, you know, banning something or, or you know, disavowing something where there's a gay relationship, a normal, healthy gay relationship, tells all of those kids in school that they are somehow not worthy of being seen and that they are somehow wrong and that seeing their relationship is wrong. And that's extremely damaging. Yeah. Um, It's not like you don't have a hard enough time if you're different than, than the norm. And so, you know, so, you know, with bondage, it was the BDSM community seeing themselves portrayed on stage as not freaks, but Mm. as people who are also people you know, inside the gear and with their kink um, and, and not treating it like a complete 
freak show. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think that everybody deserves that moment to see their experience, you know, in a respectful way. And, you know, man, we should start with kids. That yeah. Way because yeah. it is just, yeah, I mean, it's still, it kills me that in this day and age that there is still people out there who are that close-minded and, and willing to hurt people that way. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, uh, there's a great article recently by a woman named Rachel Syme mm-hmm. um, about selfies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a long read. I think either Matter or Medium published it. Um, she collected f- for months. She collected people's selfies, like asked them mm-hmm. to produce a selfie and explain the context in which this. Why were you taking this picture? Mm-hmm. Um, and the article is absolutely fascinating because it 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 really dwells on like when we mock people for like uh, vanity for mm-hmm. wanting to see themselves, mm-hmm. we misunderstand how important it is to have control over the fact that I am seen. And that's what yeah. a lot of them were doing with the selfies was was proving to themselves that they are seen. Interesting. It, it was it's a it's a it's around the corner thinking that's and it's eloquent. It's a mm-hmm. it's a S Y M E Rachel Syme. Um, I will look at that because I mean I, you know, I have, <laughs> I definitely judged my 19-year-old niece for taking a selfie. I've done the same in thing in a public yeah. bathroom. Yeah. I was like, come on, that's not classy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, she, she picks up on that specifically too. Yeah. I was like, I never thought of it that way. Right. And maybe a lot of the, maybe a lot of the people who take those selfies don't necessarily think about it that way, but she's just talking about, again, a generosity of intent toward the people doing it that, yeah. that is often absent in culture, which is really, and where that kind of comes from. That's, yeah, that that sounds actually fascinating. It's really and, great, yeah. I mean, you know, I have a friend who, um, you know, often takes selfies, and she went on a three-month-long road trip, just her and her dog, and, like, the necessity of taking a selfie when traveling alone, um, hmm. you know, is definitely something to, you know, is something to consider. But it was also just good to see her face when she was not here for three months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and it's nice also to see people happy, you know, and oftentimes people are, when they're taking a selfie are happy and, you know, you're not always taking one when you're like, (laughs) you're not taking crying selfies. Um, so yeah, that's actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of people do see it as vanity and, uh, you know, do see it as like self-centeredness, um, I still think a public bathroom is a weird place. <laughs> However, right. I think it is, you know, I think for, for her generation, especially like being seen is something that is, you know, a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, before we had cell phones, when I was a teenager um, in the dark ages, uh, <laughs> I mean, I had a camera and I have several where I'm like taking a picture. You, the only difference is you don't get to see it until it's developed. Right. Um, so, you know, I didn't have a digital camera back then. Um, so, you know, I would get film, I would take pictures of whatever. And, you know, some of them are definitely selfies. (laughs) (laughs) She talks about that too. The history of it is, goes back actually to like, if you think about it, um, self portraits Mm -hmm. of artists. Oh yeah. All the time. Do we ever consider them to be like vain, you know, peacocks? (laughs) 
<laughs> to, to do a self-portrait? No, we, we hang them in museums and we're like, oh my God, fascinating. Yeah. You've captured yourself so well. <laughs> we have no other pictures of you, so it's really good that you did this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank it's... goodness for mirrors. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you. Uh, we're at our hour. Okay. Well, actually, we're a little over it. Oh my goodness. Well, you can edit some out of it. I, I, I do not edit. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so if you'd like to review the review it and see if you regret anything, oh, I don't no, think no, you no. did. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, everything I think comes out of my mouth. So <laughs> I'm, I'm used to it. Um, can I plug my show? That's exactly where we were going with this. Awesome. Um, so December fourth and fifth at the Logan um, Logan Arts Center Trinidad <laughs> Theater over at uh, Capital Fringe HQ, we have. Uh, Cabaret Triple Xmas, which is something that we've thought about doing for years. Uh, it's just a two-night pop-up show, um, and it is irreverent singing and sketches and uh, general merriment. Um, there will be the usual audience interactions that uh, people know us and love us for. And uh, we've got a bunch of parody songs, and it's for everybody who thinks about the holidays um, with a little bit of a twisted side. <laughs> <laughs> so it's both a celebration of the holidays and also a, uh, a time for us to poke fun at all the things that suck about them. <laughs> so that is uh, December 4th and 5th at 8 p.m. All right, Pinky great. Swear Productions, PinkySwear-Productions.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for having me over. Thank you, Aaron. This is really nice, and I am so glad you tweeted for me to be like, hey, we will, we'd be happy to be on <laughs> anytime. So. Yeah, great. All right. All right. Thank you.